scripture. Our scripture reading this morning will be from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. A special welcome to the Edwards family, to Derek and Lilia. Where are you today, Edwards? Where are you guys at? You can stand up. Okay, would, would you guys mind standing real quick? Let's just welcome them real quick. Thanks. Thank you. They are in your bulletin today, and uh, as always, we're thrilled to have people who join us and worship with us. We're so glad to have met you guys, so welcome. Uh, Lydia, this woman in Philippi goes out on a Saturday morning uh, to the river, and so she comes out to this river to pray because she believes in a God that she has heard about, and in the city that she's in, there are no synagogues to worship this God. So she comes out to the place where other religious-minded people go to pray, and she probably sees over here a few steps away some women that are kneeling down and silently praying, and over here is another woman praying. And so she finds a spot uh, comfortably in between them, and she kneels and she begins to pray and to worship under her breath to the God that she longs to worship. Even amongst the people who have worshipped this God for centuries, she's not completely welcome because she's not a Jew, she's a Gentile, and so an outsider. But this one day, kneeling beside the river, a few men show up. They haven't had uh, any men leaders in worship for a while in this city, and she's excited to see them come down and join the women praying at the river and begin to speak to people and within a few moments, she finds herself caught up listening to the story that they're telling, a story that makes her heart beat faster. She finally is finding in a story about a person in human history what it would look like if the God that she has been worshiping showed up in human form as a man. The story she's hearing is about a man named Jesus, and she immediately knows that it's true. And she attaches herself to it. She gives herself willingly to the story of this man who had everything under his control, but opened his hands and emptied himself and descended into the form of a human and suffered and, and obeyed God even to death on a cross so that he could save people that were his enemies. And then God exalted him and gave him a high name above every other name so that every person in heaven and earth and under the earth would bow and would worship and honor this Jesus. When she hears him proclaimed, she believes. And so a few minutes later, she walks down into the stream with Paul and Paul asked her something probably like this Lydia 
Do you believe that this Jesus I've told you about is God's true son? And Lydia answered something like this, I do believe. And then Paul placed his hands on Lydia and plunged her beneath the waters and brought her back up again so that the beginning of her walk with Jesus would look like and match the story of Jesus coming from heaven to a place where he emptied himself like Lydia emptied herself and went under the water. A place where she would be obedient even to death and then promised to be raised like Jesus in his glory, in his place at the Father's right hand. She would have a place too. And now Lydia turns to Paul dripping with the baptismal water that's still flowing off of her and she says to Paul and his companions, if you consider me now, to be partners with you in this story, would you come and visit my home? The home of a Gentile, where Jews don't go. They don't go through the door. And Paul says, of course we will. And most likely the first church in Philippi began in the home of Lydia. The picture on the screen behind me is a stream in Philippi that is the traditional site of Lydia's baptism. Now, we don't know for sure where exactly along the stream she was baptized. How could we? But this is the traditional site. And as people are wont to do, they have built it up with a little chapel and steps and some stonework to commemorate the place and so that more people today can go and sit there and pray and contemplate how the story of Jesus broke into Greece for the very first time. Last week, I had... Uh, shown you this slide as we talked through Paul's teaching in Philippians 2 about the Christ hymn. Paul in verses 5 through 11 gave the church a song about Jesus. Probably the same kind of thing that he spoke to Lydia that day, that Saturday morning when they were praying together. And in the song that Paul wrote uh, we assume it's an early Christian hymn. It may have been poetry that they read in church. There are these parallel lines like, like these. That Jesus emptied himself. And that because Jesus emptied himself of his privilege and came down, God exalted him. Another parallel is that Jesus humbled himself. He thought of others as being more important than himself. And because he was humble in that way, God gave him an honored name. And that Jesus was obedient even to death. And because of that, every knee will bow to him. There's this parallelism in the song that shows the descent of his story. And then the ascent to his glory. Ooh, I like that. I didn't say that in first service. The descent and the ascent. The story arc of Jesus. What makes Jesus Jesus is that he came for us and he thought more of you than of his own safety. And so today as we open up and we're going to read the rest of chapter 2, I want you to think about these questions because these are the questions that might have been on Paul's mind for the Philippians when he wrote them these words. How is God challenging you to be molded to the Christ hymn in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. 
How is God challenging you in 2019 as a member of the Bentonville Church of Christ in Northwest Arkansas to be molded to this ancient song about Jesus and look more like him? How is God doing that for you? Who is showing you this Christ mindset in their living? Who are the people that when you see them, you see the shape of the Jesus hymn in their life, that they consistently let go of powerful positions and empty themselves to serve, and then that the reason that they are meaningful examples in your life, that they've been lifted up, is because they've been following that pattern of Christ's story. Who in your life looks like that? I hope that maybe you're writing or thinking of a name. Maybe you'll be inspired to send them a note later text them and what specifically about that person matches the Christ hymn in Philippians 2 is it the fact that they empty themselves is it the fact that they humble themselves is it their radical obedience to the teachings of Jesus what in the life of this person that you see that matches the song tells you that they match the song what are the specifics these are the kind of things that we could think through to help us imagine the church and growing up in Jesus the way that Paul did when he shared the Christ hymn with Lydia. And before we move into the new verses, I want us to pray over this part. So would you bow with me for a moment in prayer? Father, as we come to you this morning to read the rest of chapter 2, we have firmly fixed in our mind the song about Jesus who gave up all his privileges to save us and to be an offering for us and to please you. And we're so grateful that you've raised him up because our hope is in his resurrection and in being raised with him. God, give us the full story of Jesus in our flesh. Let our words and our deeds, our minds and our hands be molded to the song about Jesus so that we will be known as your people because we look like Jesus. Now it's in his name that we pray and we ask you to pour out your spirit upon us generously so that this church of believers can follow Jesus in the way that he lived, died, and lives again. It's in his name that we pray and together all who agree say amen. So Paul, having given this great song to the church, immediately moves into what I think is one of the more complicated verses in the New Testament. Paul is... Asking the church to think about the implications of the Christ hymn for their life. And I want you to think about the implications of the Christ hymn for your life. Paul writes to the church in Philippi in verse 12 that just as they've always obeyed, they should obey now and work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Some people maybe have heard the verse read before and it triggers some fear and trembling inside of your heart. Some of you have heard some preaching that brought you to the line and, and questioned and asked you, are you certain that you're worshiping God in a way that's pleasing to him? And if not, you should have some fear and some trembling. And maybe you have left many times with a lack of confidence that you're pleasing to God. Well, what does Paul mean when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling? He can't mean that you work for your salvation in the very next chapter, he'll tell us it comes through faith. But maybe we can work out what our salvation means in our life. 
What does it mean to have fear and trembling before God? Is this the attitude that we need to be like the people maybe in the Hebrew scriptures, afraid of a God who would strike us down if we do church wrong on Sunday morning? Or is there some way that Paul uses these words throughout the New Testament to lead us back to the person of Jesus? And that's exactly what's happening. Look at how Paul uses the the phrase fear and trembling when he wrote to the Corinthians, another church in Greece. In chapter 2 of that letter, he wrote, So it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What is Paul referring to when he says Jesus Christ and him crucified? This is a shorthand way of saying the Christ hymn that he gives the Philippians in Philippians 2. The story about Jesus is what Paul wanted to talk about with the Corinthians. He didn't want to talk about apologetics or about complicated theologies or try to prove things to them about worship styles. He wanted to talk about Jesus and his crucifixion. Then he said, so I came to you with great fear and trembling, just in the same way that in Philippians 2, the talk about Jesus is accompanied by fear and trembling. In Corinth, the talk about Jesus was accompanied by fear and trembling. This tells us what kind of fear and trembling it was. Not the kind of fear and trembling of a God who might be against us, but the kind of shakedown that happens in the soul when we realize that a God who has given everything for us can ask anything of us. What are the implications in your life that Jesus Christ descended and died and rose again Paul says, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so your faith would rest not on human wisdom, but on God's power. The story of Jesus, the Christ song, was all Paul wanted to know. Now Jesus said something about the scriptures in John chapter 5 that relates to the way we understand these words. Jesus was in the middle of a conflict with the Pharisees, the leaders of the Jewish religion, and they were often in conflict. This time, it was because Jesus was saying that what he did, the miracles, the signs, the healings, were what God told him to do. And the Jews rightly understood that Jesus was making himself equal with God, and they called it blasphemy. And Jesus, at this moment, shows them what scripture is meant to do. He said, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is preaching the Christ hymn to them in his own words. He is the fulfillment of scripture. He is the pattern for the true church. What does it mean to be followers of God in the 21st century? Well, it means roughly the same thing as it did in the first century. Much of my life, and maybe yours, you've heard in church words like this. We want to restore first century things to the 20th century church, now the 21st century church. 
We, as the churches of Christ, have been known in America as a restoration movement. And do you want to know what I say about that? It's a very good thing. But it makes all the difference in the world what you're restoring from the first century. And when these Jews read their Hebrew scriptures, and they knew them better than anyone in the history of the world. They were the best at making arguments, theological complexities. They had labels for different groups of people, denominations in their own right. They had little things that you would know about each other, have to believe this to be on the in group. They had all kinds of ways to weigh and sift who was in and who was out. And Jesus says, when you read the scriptures, this is the test of fellowship. They point to me. Do you come to me and find me to have life? Paul does the same thing when he says, work out your salvation with fear and with trembling for it's God who works in you to will and to work according to his purpose. What happens when we read the song about Jesus is we meet him face to face and then we have a choice. Do I want him? Do I want Jesus above all things? Will he be my mark of fellowship? Yes, the gospel will always give our life priorities a shakedown. Here's the progression of thought. It's as if Paul, writing to the Philippians, knows that they would have questions. So he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And it's assuming that they would ask, why, what do you mean? Paul writes, God is the one at work in you. It's not you. You see that there's nothing you can do to bring about the fruits of righteousness or the kingdom of God by your effort. But God, who works inside of you, will take you as you're molded to the Christ hymn, the letting go of prerogatives and the taking on of humility and being raised up in Jesus' way and not by our typical forms of power. God will work through you to produce and release the kingdom of God and the fruits of righteousness. As you're molded to the song about Jesus, he will change your will. And why will he do all of this? It's for his pleasure. It's because it makes his heart glad to do this. So Paul goes on in these next verses and reminds the church that they should do most things do everything without grumbling and complaining. What does it look like when a person begins to adopt the song about Jesus into their life? It's the source of joy that combats grumbling and complaining. I want to show you in the next three minutes five things that Paul does to connect chapter one of his letter to chapter two of his letter. And for the next three minutes, this is going to seem insanely uh, detailed and uh, exegetical and then it's going to have a purpose okay do you trust me do you trust me not enough of you I'm about to skip it do you trust me okay here we go all right five things that Paul does in chapter one and chapter two to show you what the heart of the letter is the first one is this because he wants us to live without grumbling and complaining the first one is this no matter where Paul is he wants the church to learn what he's teaching them, no matter where Paul is. In chapter 1, he said this. He said, whether I come to see you or only hear about you in my absence. 
Okay, he repeats it for effect in chapter 2. He says, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Paul wants them to understand what he is saying to them is the universal truth of Christian fellowship. This is what it means to have the heartbeat of Jesus. Whether I'm there or whether I'm not there, this is how we live and act and so on. So no matter where Paul is, point two is this, they must be united. So no matter where Paul is, they must be united. In chapter 1, he says, You stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one. Clearly, unity language. And in chapter 2, he says, Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Clearly, unity language. This is clearly pulled a thread that's pulled right out of the Christ hymn. Christ is so humble and self-sacrificing and loving that we should be too. So no matter where Paul is, they must be united visibly to the world. No matter where Paul is, they must be united visibly to the world. And look at the way Paul puts it. In chapter 1, this is where Todd and John had preached out of. Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Being in Philippi would be an unusual place to be a Christian. There weren't any synagogues for the Jews. There weren't any churches for the Christians at the beginning of this project. And there was lots of Roman legion soldiers that retired there. There was lots of nationalism there. There was lots of pride in Rome's big projects and trying to allure the tension of Rome to send money and favors to the city. And this idea of worshiping somebody who's called Messiah in Caesar's place is not a popular thing. So there's opposition from outsiders in chapter 2 he says you'll shine among them like stars in the sky so no matter where Paul is they must be united visibly to the world because the day is coming okay because the day is coming Paul wrote this is a sign to them that they'll be destroyed but you will be saved and remember when Paul says that there's a sign that somebody will be destroyed he doesn't mean it's written in stone it's like Ebenezer Scrooge receiving the visit from the ghost uh, of Christmas yet to come. Tell me that the shadows of these things could yet be changed. Of course they can be. This is them shining into the world like light. But it's because the day is coming. And in chapter 2 he says, I want to be able to boast about you on the day of Christ. The day of Christ is coming for the people in the world and the people in the church. So no matter where Paul is, they must be united visibly to the world because the day is coming and our shared suffering brings joy. Our shared suffering brings joy. Paul wrote in chapter 1, since you're going through the same struggle, I, I, you saw that I have, the suffering that I have, you're sharing in. And then in chapter 2 he says, even if I'm poured out like a drink offering, I'm glad and I rejoice with you. Okay, even if I suffer, it, it, it's okay because it's part of the Christ story. Suffering in life is not a sign that God has left me. It's a sign that I'm being married and matched to the song about Jesus. Suffering in life, when done without complaining, brings joy and rejoicing. And for those of you who have been taking notes for the last five weeks, th these words ought to be just triggering bells in your head and you're circling them and you're taking a note that this is the theme of the book, the joy that overflows in Jesus. And how does it come about? Let me say it one more time just to be really annoying. No matter where Paul is, they must be united visibly to the world because the day is coming and our shared suffering will bring joy. Paul in chapter 1 and chapter 2 surrounding the Christ hymn 
is trying to shape their minds to receive it, that it is their story. It is their pledge of unity. It is their mark of fellowship. They need no other flyers or pamphlets. They need no other name. Paul knows that this is hard to do. So he gives them two examples of people that they know who have lived their lives in this way. That whether Paul was near or far, they have kept the unity and the love for the church through the story of Jesus and suffered on behalf of others in the church. I asked you at the beginning of this message today, who do you know that's living out the song of Jesus? Well, here was who Paul knew and the Philippians knew. They were looking for people who were like-minded, genuinely concerned for the church and seeking after Christ's interest before their own. People that had a proven character. And to Paul's mind comes Timothy, and the Philippians knew him well. He had been there with them. He had baptized there. He had taught there. He had, he had led them in the early services of worship and so on. And so Paul writes, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I also may be cheered and receive news about you. I have no one else like him, look at his description, who will show genuine concern for your welfare. That is a line right out of the Christ song. Paul says Timothy is like Jesus. For everyone looks out for their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ, but you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with a father, he served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, and I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. Paul's example to them. Timothy. And why does he pick Timothy? It's not because Timothy's doctrine. It's not because Timothy has all of the right theologies. It's not because Timothy never has weakness. He has weakness. Paul writes to him in the letters to him about his weakness. It's because he's been married to the Christ hymn. It's because it has become the shape of his story. And Paul gives them another, Epaphroditus, their own worker from Philippi who had brought the gift to Paul. We don't know much about Epaphroditus probably because we usually skip over these kind of texts. They're not rich, so we would think, with theology. Oh, but they are. Look at what he says. It's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother. Wow. Coworker. Wow fellow soldier who's also your messenger whom you sent to take care of my needs for he longs for all of you again sounds like the Jesus of Philippians 2 5 to 11 he's distressed because you heard that he was ill and he was ill and he almost died but God had mercy on him and not on him only but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow so I'm all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you'll be glad and I'll have less anxiety. So welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him. Because he almost died for the work of Christ, he risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Paul says, why should you honor Epaphroditus? Because in his story, in his place of comfort in Philippi, he let go, he opened his hands, and he came to Ephesus to the prison where he almost died. He was almost forced to be obedient to the point of death, just like the Jesus of the song. And now God's restored his health. And one day after Epaphroditus is long gone for generations, God will restore him again. 
because he's participating in the story arc of Jesus, the mark of fellowship, what it means to be the true church. Paul calls them some wonderful things. In just a moment today, we're going to have our final song and our invitation like we always do. And I hope that you're still thinking about the questions of how the song applies to you. How has God challenged you to be molded to the Christ hymn? Who in your life shows the Christ mindset in a way that you love to imitate? And what specifically about them matches Philippians 2 to 5? Because these are the kind of questions that will help God's church of Christ grow in unity towards people as we move into the future together. Being closer to the story of Jesus. Last week, whenever I finished the sermon, I gave a challenge to see if anybody would like to make their own artistic, poetic version of this Christ hymn. And I received back some beautiful responses, and I thank you. I picked one of them out to share today. And so when we have uh, this song and our moment of invitation, if you would like to come down here and pray, we'll pray with you. But you're welcome just to come down here and just to pray. And, and uh, some of our elders will be in the back to pray with you too. And today, if you want to join in the story for the first time of Jesus, you know, be plunged under the water and raised back up again, we're happy to marry you to the story. And if you have been in the story and stepped out of it and you want to reclaim it, just let's do that together. I'm going to ask you to stand while I read this poem, and then we're going to sing. This comes from Sarah Fantanel, and she gave me permission to say that and to read it today. Uh, a modern adaption of the Christ hymn. When Jesus came to Galilee and walked the roads and temple stairs, he did not come as Godhead three. Instead, he did what no man dares. He saw the fruit, the fruit was good, and it was his to eat and know. Instead, he did what no man would. He did not grasp, he let it go. Men seek to fill their emptiness. Instead, he did what no man wants. With humbleness and gentleness, a servant role he then adopts. Indeed, he did what no man could, allowed his torture and his death for Adam's race with spikes and wood. The world stopped with his final breath. The plan has come together now, is death defeated. Now the days are free. Now every knee will bow and every tongue will proudly praise. To Jesus, who now lives and breathes, be all the honor and glory. Your name is highest, God decrees, O King, remaker of our story. May he remake your story and mine to the same image. Let's sing and worship him.